0: I can't wait to hear from you.
1: You know, Jesus says, follow me. And then, well, where does he take us? He takes us sometimes into difficult places in our own discipleship.
0: The Living Church, serving the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion since 1878. Welcome to the Living Church podcast. Welcome, podcast listeners. We're on the verge of Lent right now. I always look forward to Lent. I don't know about you. You know about my love for many things by now, probably, including the change of seasons and what that brings out of our lives. The change of liturgical seasons is no exception. It's strange to enter the season of Lent with the Holy Land in the news in this particular way. All eyes are on the Holy Land right now, on its sufferings and struggles. As the conflict between Hamas and Israel continues, over a hundred kidnapped Israelis still missing, as I'm recording this, and over a thousand Israeli civilians dead and tens of thousands of Palestinian civilians killed in the crossfire. As many of you will know, the Living Church had a pilgrimage planned for this year to the Holy Land that is now obviously postponed until further notice, The name of this pilgrimage is In the Footsteps of Jesus. Today, we'll be talking with someone who has walked in the footsteps of Jesus many times as a pilgrimage leader, as well as a resident of Jerusalem himself. And not only in the footsteps of Jesus, but in the footsteps of Abraham and Sarah, Jacob, David, the apostles, the woman at the well, and many more ancestors in the faith, as well as the citizens of the land today. What is it about this place that people have fallen in love with for thousands of years and fought wars over? Why has God met so many people on these roads? What do these roads in the Holy Land teach us, not only in human footsteps, but also in the rocks and the water, the plants and the animals along the way? What do they teach us about God's presence, God's faithfulness, and what can we see there now, especially in time for Lent? I enjoyed speaking about all of this with the Reverend Canon Dr. Andrew D. Mays. Andrew has served as spirituality advisor to the Diocese of Chichester and to the Diocese of Cyprus in the Gulf. He's lived several years in Jerusalem as a theological researcher and as director of courses for St. George's College, of which he is associate professor. He is the author of 16 spirituality books, including the award-winning Learning the Language of the Soul, Beyond the Edge, and most recently, Roads of Hurt and Hope, Transformative Journeys in the Holy Land. This is the work that we'll be riffing off today, and it's actually a Lenten study. And all the proceeds of this Lenten study, by the way, will go to the Anglican Diocese of Jerusalem for the rebuilding of the Anglican Hospital in Gaza. We hope you might consider looking at maybe purchasing this Lenten study as a donation, and we'll provide a link to the book in the show notes today. Now tighten your hiking shoes. Pack a lunch. And don't forget if you get a moment to stop and buy a souvenir from a local vendor. We're going on a journey today across time and across an ancient, beloved landscape. Sometimes it's strenuous. Sometimes it's quiet and still. It is very often surprising. We hope you enjoy the conversation. You said that you're recently retired. I'm imagining you somewhere near a sheep farm. You know, like the Y Valley or something. Where where are you right now? And and well, how is your, it?
1: your geography's not bad really for an American.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Touche, I will accept that blow, sir. <laughs>
1: no, I, I'm not that far from Hereford and I live in a market town. You know, used to have a big cattle market and all that stuff. It's a stone's throw from Hereford in the area called the marches, which is the borderlands between Wales and England. There's a string of castles actually to keep the Welsh out.
0: So do you get a chance to cross the border occasionally? Will the will the border guards let you over?
1: There are are more sheep in Wales than there are humans, I think.
0: Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Andrew, I'm so grateful to have you on the show today. Thank you for coming on. I would like to start by asking how you got involved in the Holy Land in the first place. You've spent so much of your life there. What sparked that for you? Well,
1: I was I just graduated from King's College London. I was 22. And someone told me about a scholarship called the Philip Usher Scholarship that placed an ordinand under 30, so I qualified, in an Orthodox setting, when I say Eastern Orthodox setting, for about a year to encourage relations and understanding with the Eastern Orthodox churches. Mm. And in those days, you, you you were interviewed for the scholarship by the Archbishop of Canterbury himself. And when you came back after your year away, you had to sit down with the Archbishop of Canterbury and give him an account of of what you've been doing
0: well of course he didn't want you you know you couldn't be over there screwing up ecumenical relations you had to <laughs> behave yourself
1: <laughs> you had to send monthly reports as well wow anyway okay. i i put forward the proposal i got the scholarship for that year to live uh, in the armenian orthodox seminary in jerusalem i'd come across armenians at king's college london and they were my first point of contact with this different group of Christians I'd never heard of before, the uh, Orthodox. And I now realize this, there's the Byzantine Orthodox and also the family to which the Armenians belong, the Oriental Orthodox. They like that idea. So I, I went to Jerusalem at the age of 22, and I learned classical Armenian so I could understand the liturgy. And the librarian was also the choir master, said, You've got if you want to understand the spirituality, Andrew, you must join the choir. Mm.
0: So I sang in the mm-hmm.
1: church which most Western Christians call the Holy Sepulchre, but the local Christians call the Church of the Resurrection. The wow. Saulson Basilica that incorporates the sites of Calvary and uh, the Resurrection. And I sang there in their choir, and I really entered into their spirituality, and that was a great privilege. Then I became, after a while, parish priest and would take groups out there frequently. And then I was invited to become the director of courses at St George's College, mm. Jerusalem. St George's College runs short courses through the year, 15 to 20 of them. They're two-week courses, generally speaking. And they're for students aged between 18 and 18. And eighty, and we get about 30 or 40 uh, pilgrims, hopefully, on each course. And we go around the, the country and there are specialised courses like interfaith, dialogue, a time in the desert and so on. Mm. I would design these courses and lead them. And that's really where I, my understanding of everything I deepened greatly because I was living out there for a, a longer period of time.
0: Yeah, your relationship began not, it seems to me, not so much as a pilgrim, definitely not as someone who was on vacation. You were there completely immersed from day one. You learned classical Armenian, you know, you're you're singing the music. And just to say there's something about singing with others that develops yes. a, a closeness, a kind of intimacy, its own kind of immersion. So this is a really particular way to begin your time in the Holy Land that I'm sure has shaped you. And and I would guess that your relationship with Eastern Orthodoxy is still live and active.
1: Oh, yes, very much so. Because as I was designing the courses, I obviously came to understand the land and its peoples uh, in, in new ways. And I started to read the scriptures quite differently because I could see that you have to understand the physicality of the geography and all that but also it's a sacramental landscape all the, the mountains the rivers they all carry uh, a sacramental spiritual meaning it's so like it becomes a sort of symbolic universe in which the story of the divine is set the mountains and uh, the rivers and i've even written a book about the underground the Holy Land underground. The early church fathers talked about the mystic caves, and you know God is at work in the darkness of the cave, and all that. And uh, the story of the Nativity is set in a cave, according to very early sources. So I just started to fall in love with the with the whole topography and at, at the levels of meaning.
0: Thank you for saying that. This is not somebody coming from the outside and Casting a romantic view onto a landscape, onto a foreign landscape, it strikes me that people who are born and bred there and live there their whole lives also have this perspective of the land, of it having a spiritual, deeply spiritual significance. You know, I mean, we wouldn't be having a conflict, some of the conflicts we're having now, if it was, you know, roads and trees and 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 that's it, and it wasn't infused for people with a profound. Spiritual and symbolic yes, meaning.
1: You're, you're right. Yeah. So obviously, that's uh, the Jewish people see it as the promised land. But the Palestinians, quite a few of their anthropologists claim their descent from the Canaanites <laughs> who were actually there before Joshua and that one. Right. <laughs> right. So, yes, they're very invested in the land and they both claim the olive tree as a symbol of their. Uh, um, presence in the land that, uh, because its roots go so deep. And, mm. You know, it's ubiquitous as well in the Holy Land.
0: Andrew, you've written this Lenten study about five particular roads in the Holy Land. And your Lenten study asks who has walked particular roads and what these roads can teach us today about our journeys in the life of God and God's people. I just want to briefly name those five roads for folks who have not heard of your study or who might be interested in it. You have a chapter on the road walked by Abraham and Sarah. So this very ancient road walked by the patriarchs and matriarchs on their way into this, this land that God has promised who knows where it is or what it is. You also have a chapter on the via Maris, the way of the sea, which is this ancient trade route between Egypt and Mesopotamia. You have a third chapter on the Wilderness Road, which I think probably was my favorite chapter, the road between Jericho and Jerusalem, which is a very loaded road, a road of celebration, a load of a road of danger and violence. And then the Via Dolorosa, of course, in Jerusalem is the fourth chapter. And the fifth chapter is the road to Emmaus, this post-resurrection road of mystery, seven miles away from Jerusalem. Yeah. So Andrew. It turns out that God's dealings with humans have a lot to do with roads. What is this about? Why, why do you think this is? Why do you think he does so much with humans along roads? And, and when did this first fascinate you?
1: Well, I, I think that in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew scriptures, we say the God is a pilgrim God. He's a God on the road. He's a God who actually walk, travels along the roads his presence symbolized by the tabernacle, by the ark in a tent, and he's pitching his tent, as it were, as people travel across the desert, that particular wilderness. And this, of course, is picked up in the the New Testament, the word tabernacled amongst us. But I it is fascinating when you you think about roads and you think, well, yes, yeah, Paul on the road to Damascus. Yeah. There was the Ethiopian who bumped into suddenly found Philip beside him near near Gaza on that road. And then the woman by the well, the the roadside well in Samaria. You know, do things do seem to happen on roads. And I think it's because maybe we're we're in transit, we're in movement, and I think the roads, you know, I suppose it is related to the archetypal spiritual symbol, which, of course, is the journey, but I think the roads beckon us towards, you know, an openness or a venture, a venturesomeness, such a word, an adventurous spirit, that we're, you know... God invites us to go places with God. I I think it particularly dawned on me when I was in the Holy Land and I realised that Jesus was always, it seems, except for his times of retreat, always in transit. He didn't uh, set up a healing sanctuary and ask people to come to him in Capernaum or something. He He went where people were, and the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He was indeed the archetypal pilgrim, if you like. And this is an image of the Christian life that Mark picks up, isn't it? Mark uses that phrase, on the road, Mm -hmm. or on the way, Mm -hmm. seven times. So it becomes very symbolic, both of the physical dusty road and the, the path of discipleship.
0: Well, you've also walked a few roads of your own. You've walked each one of these roads that's in your Lenten study. Each chapter of reflection begins with the literal road, the place where it is, the plants, the history, the rock formations, the water, whether farming is a part of this road or not. It doesn't start with metaphor, right? And and maybe you could even say that God's dealings with us don't start with metaphor. They start with bodies. And so the truth, the scriptural, scriptural illumination come out of this literal landscape. I'd love to talk about your own walks along these literal roads. Could you share, Andrew, a few experiences that you've had along one or two of the roads that you write about?
1: Well, I think if you're asking for my favorite road, it ha- sounds as if you like it as well. It is the desert road between Jerusalem and Jericho. Because, first of all, it's beautiful in a strange sort of way. It's the desert, because it's not a sandy desert, it's a rocky desert. There are these deeply incised canyons and towering cliffs. The desert is paradoxical. It's sort of threatening and strangely inviting at the same time. And, of course, it resonates with all the great themes, you know, that God has a habit of working in the desert. That's the the road that I I love. Of course, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, they're going down the road. They've, They've done their devotions in Jerusalem, and now they're going down to Jericho. For the Jewish people, if you're coming the other way, you're climbing, you're climbing up through this beautiful landscape, and that's why the Jewish people call pilgrimage, it's a Hebrew word meaning going up
0: yes and we have those psalms. beautiful psalms of ascent as well psalms of
1: ascent let's go up to the house of the lord up because it is quite a climb from through the desert so i love that but i i love the topography and i love the the sheer rugged beauty of that particular road where you can still see traces of the roman road to the edges uh, but I also love it because it, it is unpredictable. You don't know who you're going to bump into. I've met some incredible Bedouin on that road, for example, in that valley. And also there's the wildlife. You know, there are what the King James version calls conies. Do you know what a cony is?
0: A, a rabbit.
1: <laughs> not far off. It's a sort of rock badger.
0: Oh, and no anyway, kidding. They,
1: Yeah, so it's, you're not. So anyway, it's a place of conies and gazelle. It's occupied territory today. There will be military helicopters overhead from time to time. It's part of the West Bank, but it has been designated um, by the Israelis as a nature reserve. So you see a lot of wildlife.
0: Could you say a word about the plant life along the road also?
1: I think the prophets picked this up. Is that There's an extraordinary transformation in about... January, February, March time, where the barren brown rock becomes green. There's a carpet of green, and you can almost see it before your eyes. The winter rains fall on the Mount of Olives. That's the watershed, and they flow out through this what valley. It's called the Wadi Kelt, Q-E-L-T, and it just is transformed into all these. You, know, you thought it was a place of deadness. Actually, it's where scholars place the Psalm 23, the valley of the shadow of death. It can be a ghastly place in winter, if you like, but it's transformed.
0: I can imagine it so well as you're describing it. I've read these promises in the prophets, and I, I didn't realize that they were attached to a natural cycle that occurs. You know, when it says, I will make the dry places, you know, overflow with this, that, and the other. The trees will clap their hands. Where there was a desert, there will be the myrtle and the cedar. And I I think that that's hyperbole, that's metaphorical. So it didn't occur to me that this was part of the landscape that you're in. You can see it happen. You know it's going to happen. Maybe it says something to you about God's faithfulness over and over and over again, and not just an apocalyptic thing, which will happen at the end of time, but also... This seasonal, reliable faithfulness that occurs over and over. Actually, I'm
1: kicking myself now because I could have made something of the ecology of this. It. So it's not. I haven't really done that in the book.
0: Aha! We've <laughs> yeah, got an appendix. I'm
1: gonna to have to write an appendix. ps uh, I just asked
0: for. I just ask for ten percent royalties. That's all. All right.
1: <laughs> but it's a rich ecological theme.
0: Are there any particular encounters along this road? personally that you would want to share you i do you do write a bit in your in your study about this but before i move on i want to give you an opportunity if there are any particular stories that you wanted to share about moments that you met people or god met you or encounters with animals that were significant anything along those lines
1: well of course this same valley is where monastic life began in the 3rd century and Saint Cariton was the first monk, he lived there, I think 280. So there's very much a sense of the divine in the landscape. And once you start walking in a certain way, you 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 feel as if you're you're on sacred ground and you're you're brushing against the divine. And it's one of these places where you don't you don't have to work very hard to pray. Do you know what I mean? I do. You, you just do it. You find yourself breathing prayer because the the presence of God in the desert, in this in all many deserts, particularly this one. Uh although we know it was a dangerous place, and uh, still is in some ways, the parable of the Good Samaritan and so on. Uh, Nevertheless, it's a place where one just senses the divine, you know, very naturally. And I would often lead pilgrims to this particular valley and just ask them to sit for an hour. And I read, I've done courses to train spiritual directors, and they've found that one of the highlights of their, of their pilgrimage.
0: Now, we've mentioned the word walking many times so far in our conversation, but I think many of us, I mean, especially if you live in the U.S., it can be very hard to live in a community where you actually do a lot of walking from one place to another. And I know that the Holy Land is full of highways. In a, in this world of highways and driving, what difference does walking make? Another way maybe to put it is, is how you think that driving and and highway dependency might limit our imaginations for God's work, and how can we heal that?
1: I think when we step into a car, I think you call it an auto, is it?
0: Well, we call it (laughs) a car.
1: (laughs) You call it car as well.
0: We do, we do. (laughs) Uh,
1: You're insulating yourself (laughs) in a metal box with a bit of glass, aren't you? And you're, you're already one step removed from reality, from the physicality and you're now traveling at great speeds in a metal box. And of course, it doesn't take me to point out that to walk is the way to engage if one's got the leisure or opportunity. Because you you I sometimes say, it's one was you said, I think, you can pray with your fingertips. Well the f- fingerprints of God are everywhere. And you actually you to touch the surface of trees, of rocks, uh, to pray with your fingertips. It's sacramental. This is the way God made us to be. Uh, And for me, it comes very powerfully in the contrast between a tourist and a pilgrim. Hmm. And I used to say, in a slightly grumpy voice to my students, don't talk to me about a tour. Don't use that word, because tour and the word tourist actually come from the French word for tower. So a tourist is in his his or her ivory tower, or, mm-hmm. or at least looking down from a safe distance. But the word pilgrim comes from the words per agri, which means through the fields,
0: ah. through the dust. Ah, wow.
1: So mm-hmm. you've got a choice. Are so you going to see the world? you know, from your tower as a tourist, or are you going to be a pilgrim down in the dust, down in the, through the, walking through the fields? And that's that's the sort of choice that that we've got. And, you know, it's, I know living day to day in the city and so on, it's hard to keep
0: that balance. It is. I appreciate that as well, because as someone who has helped lead pilgrimage groups, I've thought about this. What's the difference between being a pilgrim and being a tourist? And I've not led a group that didn't realize that they were pilgrims. I mean, I've led groups who were wanting to engage in prayer and, and spend time and go on walks. And, but Honestly, you know, we're we're still in a tour bus. We want to be comfortable. Sometimes you spend hours in traffic on a pilgrimage, you know, because you're just trying to get to the holy site and your bus driver's swearing, you know, you're trying to get to the holy site before it closes. There's a struggle and there's a deep imperfection and even some irony about what it means to be a pilgrim today. Do you still see pilgrims who are very old fashioned, very traditional, who are Walking barefoot or fasting or yeah, crawling right. along on their knees. I mean, do you find this kind of pilgrimage anymore, or is this sort of something uh, we can't do anymore? Not, not
1: so much, but rec- in recent years, someone's developed what they call the Jesus Trail, where you can walk, I think it goes from Nazareth to uh, Capernaum, might, might be further than that. And it's it's a sort of Camino. Ah, you know, it's
0: mm-hmm. a
1: pilgrim. It's a pill, and you you stop in little places on the way. But it's doable, and you can uh, Google it. There's a I've got the, the book called the Jesus Trail, and it has different itineraries. But I think it's getting people onto the earth. That's the key thing. Of course, where it's possible to do so. I mean, some of the roads that I mentioned, we might come onto this. Are dangerous roads, you know. Yes. That's, you know, you wouldn't walk up Route 60 very easily today. That's the way of the Patriot because uh, it's become a militarized road. But we're talking about the ideal of reconnecting back to ecology, really, aren't we? Reconnecting with, with Mother Earth. Hey
0: there, podcast listener. If you've listened to the podcast for a while, you probably know that The Living Church is not just a podcast. Oh no, my friend. TLC is a publishing ministry with a unique magazine, independent church news reporting, a stellar theology blog, resources for parish ministry, many of them free. I could go on. Stop me now. Stop me now. We're rooted in the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion, but we have a big heart for the unity of all God's people. You know that I love that you're here, but I don't want you to just stay in the podcast space and miss out on other ways our ministry might serve you. You can go to livingchurch.org and see what all TLC offers. How can we serve you today? One way we might serve you is coming up in September. We're hosting an event with an amazing community of friends at All Souls Episcopal Church in Oklahoma City, a conference called the Human Pilgrimage. What does it mean to be human? How do we live fully as creatures loved, limited, and liberated by God? Join the Living Church September 26th to 28th in Oklahoma City and be refreshed by three days of world-class keynotes, friendship, and meditation on who we are as creatures in Christ. Right now, you also get 15% off all tickets with the promo code Bird. Go to livingchurch.org forward slash events for more information and to buy your tickets. And I hope to see you there. I'd like to actually go down that that rabbit trail about this road that Abraham and Sarah walked, which is now Route 60, which is full of military checkpoints. And I think you have actually ventured on this road in your own adventures and maybe in research for this project. I
1: have not walked the road, but I've traveled it uh, when possible. But this road follows the spine of the country. We're talking about the highlands. Abraham and Sarah would follow this road. They'd go to places that resonate with us today. Shechem and Shiloh and Ramallah. And then south of south of Jerusalem, of course, is Bethlehem on the same road and Hebron. All these places are places of intense pain today. We all know the story of John 4. And we know Jesus was on that road. It was a roadside well. He was walking, you know, as a pilgrim, as it were, taking the disciples by the way into a, a liminal space, a no-go area. And also, it's got the Old Testament associations of Shechem, you know. But today, next to the Jacob's Well is the city of Nablus, and right next door to it is Balata, which is one of the biggest refugee camps in. The West Bank oh. and has been regarded by the Israelis as a sort of seedbed of resistance. So they've been raiding it almost every night the last few weeks. Mm. And this is the Holy Land. <laughs> I mean, it's this is ancient checkout, it's a Jacob's well, but it's also Balata refugee camp and um, Nablus, which is the, the town um, where it is. Uh, is subject to nightly raids and that's part of the book really i mean we're looking at the biblical stories we reconnect with them we're putting them in their physical context but we're also talking to people on the road today and that's i think the the bite and the cutting edge of the book really the course is that we can actually speak to people Hear their voices.
0: I agree. That's very important to mention. So thank you for saying that. I enjoyed so much reading the interviews with people living today along these roads. And I can't think of a single one, a single chapter that didn't bring up pain of some kind. Mm. Economic pain and hardship, political pain, the pain of war the uncertainty of living along a road that has a reputation for being dangerous or being really difficult with either the landscape, but also because of other humans, military checkpoints, et cetera. And as you were talking about the the pain along these roads, Jacob's well is a place that this woman um, who Jesus meets at the well is a place of potential profound shame for her, a very complex social space. And then Shechem, of course, I mean, first time we hear of Shechem, what a horrible story. You know, Dina, the rape of Dina and the sacking of Shechem. As long as God's people have been moving through this land, you know, it's the the pain of being human and being sinful humans in a landscape, interacting with the promises of God and the unfolding of the promises of God and either our acceptance of them or resistance to them. Is just played out here in some incredible ways that that you bring out in your Lenten study. How have you seen Andrew God's faithfulness, particularly coming through pain on the road?
1: Well, you know, the both the Christian Palestinians and the Muslim have this concept "samu," and it means well. We could translate it as faith, but it sort of means stickability. It means. Mm. Never giving up, holding on in there, and constancy, resilience—all these sort of things. But I think it's—it's it's another word for faith. And I'm really struck by the samut, the, the the tenacity, and I think i be able to use the faithfulness of people, you know, on both sides of that divide, who who hold on and and. And persevere through adversity. And I think, you know, the church is one example of that the clergy and their congregations in Nablus. And I'm thinking now about Archbishop Hossam, in our Archbishop in Jerusalem, his tenacity and leadership, and the, the congregation in Jerusalem. The book, by the way, is I'm trying to, I shall give all the proceeds of it, the profits of it to the Diocese of Jerusalem. And I'm hoping that they will use it for the rebuilding of the Anglican hospital in Gaza, the Al-Akhri hospital. I don't know about you, Amber, but I think you, you, you're in the West and you, you see these unfolding painful dramas and you feel so powerless. And you you ask yourself, "Well, what can I do? Well, there are things we can do. And it just dawned on me that I could write this resource, and I could mm. hopefully raise some money for them through through it.
0: I'm so glad you had that inspiration to do that. And I hope that anyone who is asking the same questions as you did receive such a clear answer, uh, whether that's uh, through money or lobbying or writing some letters or even, I mean, I think about sending an encouraging email to a leader who is in one of these places to say, I'm praying for you, you know, or we said, we said a mass for you today or whatever it may be, could be such, such an encouragement, even a small gesture. So thank you for your obedience. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, Andrew, if we're bringing contemporary pain into these reflections, obviously, that's going to mean bringing contemporary politics into the reflections and they do come up in your studies quite a bit and it occurs to me that those who might be interested in a lenten study might say okay no 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 i do not want politics in my lenten study please can we just remain devotional i just wonder if you might have a a pastoral word for them you know how would you respond to to that
1: well we don't le- believe in some antiseptic deity who is stuck in a pure heaven. But we believe in a a God who has dusty feet and is incarnate and walks wherever the pain is to support people. And so it's a question, really, if you like, of obedience, again, You know, Jesus says, follow me, and then, well, where does he take us? He takes us sometimes into difficult places in our own discipleship and so on. I get this in the Holy Land, because sometimes you get pilgrims who just want a sort of devotional moment with Jesus and me, and that's the main thing they want. And then a helicopter goes (laughs) over. Well, and also... (laughs) that what happens in the holy land is almost everywhere is there's no purely holy place mm-hmm. there's this juxtaposition between the holy and the unholy you know you walk the via the Rosa and you want to have nice inward thoughts and then you know a, a soldier will bash into you or something and this is the reality and i think actually It's a good reality because it is a reality check and keeps our devotion from being too introverted. And I found that it's very hard to be a Christian in the Holy Land because you can't retreat into devotion in a sort of separate way, you know, because it's all around you, the reality is all around you. In any event, devotion is a wonderful thing, kindling our relationship with God. But it's a gift given to us to energize us, to animate us for our ministry, whatever that's going to be, our discipleship.
0: The scripture says you're the salt of the earth. I mean, if as christians we lack salt i mean god in his mercy often provides it by intruding on our <laughs> on our sometimes less than salty nice and comfortable sweet you know little devotional bubbles whether it's having a baby who's screaming or whether it's a weed whacker outside which is often my problem during my personal devotions or a tank going by or honestly andrew you even mention in your study that the, the Via Dolorosa, that in the evening when the pilgrims are gone, people are coming out, they're selling things, kids are playing soccer along the Via Dolorosa. Yes. So it's it's not just sin or intrusions, it's also human life and and the vitality of human life, which will always, thank God, continue to, to break up our categories of how we think God works or mm-hmm. he should work. Well, Andrew, you... In all your time in the Holy Land, you've spent a lot of time around pilgrims, but you've also lived there as a resident. So you have both perspectives. How have you seen the presence of pilgrims walking these roads bless the people who live there? And how have you seen pilgrim presence frustrate local life along (laughs) the roads of the Holy Land? Can you say something about that?
1: Well, the example comes to mind of is. The Via Dolorosa, the way of the cross, its route goes right through the center of the old city of Jerusalem. And pilgrims can be a real nuisance because if you've got a big group, they block the way. And, you know, kids are trying to get to school, mums are trying to go shopping and all that stuff. People are going to work. And you get these annoying pilgrims who're singing their devotional. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? (laughs) And all they want, the people, is want to get to school. On the other side, and this is what really moves me, is that Jerusalem is a pretty divided city and a a place of pain, but there's this hidden river of prayer through the centre, the way of the cross, and it begins in the Muslim court brushes past some Jewish seminaries and so on and just weaves its way. And this ribbon of prayer, this river of prayer, is Jerusalem's best kept secret in a way. Because it just means there's an awful lot of people praying in the heart of the city. And of course, this river of prayer goes to Calvary and to the empty tomb. So, if I'm thinking about how pilgrims bless the uh, the people on the roads, I mean, I have heard one man, one shopkeeper say, "Those damn Christians—they just keep their noses in their prayer books and they never look up at my shop," which is probably true. But I think this river of prayer—you know—it moves me to think that Christians of all types are. Walking this way, I mean, I, as you know, I interview people on the, who live on the Way of the Cross, try to uncover some of their stories, both the Jewish seminarians, the Shiva people, and Arab refugees, and charity workers, and other people. But it's this is a it's a river of prayer that just goes on flowing. You know, mm-hmm. I think there's a faithfulness and constancy about it, and I feel. You know, Naim Atik, he's founder of Sabil, the liberation theology. He says the way of the cross isn't just a ritual, it's a reality. And I think he's right. You know, Jesus walks the way of the cross today. And if you were asking me which of the five roads would be the most challenging or the most resonant, I think I would choose the way of the cross because it resonates with people's experience, wherever they live in, on the globe. People are walking ways of hope and pain, and they're blended together. And there are people by, by them to support them. There's the Veronicas and the Marys and the Simon of Cyrenes of this world, thank God. And when I see Jesus walking along the way of the cross, I don't think of him as one solitary sort of martyr figure, he represents all of us. I mean, he chose that designation, son of man, Uh, Ben Adam in the Hebrews. It's not rocket science. It just means I'm one of you. Mm -hmm. I'm a human one. And Jesus walks the way of the cross as every man, every woman, and gathers into him, him himself the pain and the joys of everyone. So that... That for me, is the the road that is the most well, they're all archetypal in their own way, but it seems to resonate and also of course, hopefully end in resurrection
0: <laughs> yes, amen <laughs> I mean this how can this not lead then to thoughts and visions of the New Jerusalem and what that means? is that do you do you see? Jerusalem, you know, where it is now, this landscape that you've known that, that so many people have walked and lived and died and shopped and taken their kids to school and and been crucified and gotten married and had weddings, this place, do you imagine this in your mind as the place that is, that is transformed and transfigured into?
1: I, I'm almost speechless because you're asking me to describe heaven yeah,
0: Yeah, I basically (laughs) just pulled this question on him, everyone. I just asked him in the moment to describe him.
1: I'd rather stay with the image of Ezekiel 48. There is the river in the heart of the temple, and it flows out uh, into the desert. Uh, And that seems to me to be an image that we could claim for the church's vocation, or even our, our own parish church's vocation. That the wa- it's the, the water is not uh, in the temple for us to paddle around in all day and enjoy. It's a river and should be deepening. You know that lovely bit in Ezekiel where he's paddling and then he has to swim hmm. because the water is getting deeper and deeper. And the whole landscape, the desert, is being transformed, and there are trees growing with leaves for the healing of the nations, which of course revelation picks up and that's an image of jerusalem i suppose jerusalem reaching out and i think that's something that would inspire me has inspired me as a parish priest you know what's this church for it's what's this temple for as it were let it be a place where springs begin and flow out into the community
0: yes And for the record, Andrew, I deeply appreciate your reticence to describe heaven (laughs) on the record. Well, Andrew, I'm so grateful for my time with you. I've been speaking today with the Reverend Canon Dr. Andrew D. Mays. Andrew, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church. If you appreciated this episode, you know what to do. Take a moment to share it with friends or colleagues, or please leave us a good review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I'm Amber Noel, your host, and our producer is Leslie Thompson. It's been good to be with you. Peace.